You're listening to the CMS Podcast, and I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Manager for the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. MIT Comparative Media Studies celebrated its 10th anniversary this month, so we threw a big bash, inviting back all our alumni, welcoming MIT faculty and friends, and together getting a chance to look back over 10 years of an amazing program, and forward to 10 amazing years more. You can find all of the anniversary podcasts and a huge array of other podcasts from CMS over the years in the iTunes store and on our website at cms.mit.edu. Phones are on. Okay, I'd like to welcome everyone to the final session uh, of the day, the final uh, symposium session. Thank you for the marathon runners here who've made it up Heartbreak Hill. Uh, we're in the uh, final, final stretch, uh, and there will be, after this panel, there'll be closing remarks. Uh, there'll be uh, an interim session down back in CMS HQ, and then the party will begin at 7 p.m. Uh, and so I encourage you all, if you have the energy yet, please come to the party, uh, and thank you for being here now. Uh, th this last panel of the day is International Media Flows, uh, Global Media and Culture, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's a topic near and dear to my heart, um, and it raises, it seems to me, uh, some new questions uh, for us to think about uh, in terms of both where comparative media studies uh, has been and where it can go. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about uh, applied humanities, uh, collaboration, uh, participatory culture, uh, and now we're thinking about the international uh, dimension of uh, the comparative part of the equation. Uh, and it seems to me that comparative media studies is a really wonderful term uh, for all sorts of reasons, right? We're comparative uh, across time, looking at uh, media through history, thinking of media in times of transition. Uh, we're comparative across media forms, uh, thinking of transmedia, cross-platform, other kinds of connectivity, ways that storytelling and other kinds of social practices uh, are no longer uh, within a specific silo of media, uh, but in fact necessarily and increasingly we expect for the future we'll move across uh, media forms. Uh, but that media is also something that needs to be studied comparatively across national boundaries. Uh, and I, I think that this is really important, uh, especially today. Uh, we live in an era of uh, global connectivity, uh, but it's not entirely clear what this global connectivity will entail. Uh, there was a lot of concern, I think, in the early days of theorizing globalization, uh, that globalization would be paramount to Americanization or Westernization or the spread of Western-style consumerism. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that that's not, in fact, the case, uh, but what other terms, domestication, indigenization, localization, globalization, globalization, there's been a, a, <laughs> a plethora uh, of neologisms uh, that still none of which seem to fully capture uh, the things that are going on, and in that sense, it's very much uh, an opening for us uh, to think about what comparative internationally might mean. Um, uh, I, I'm a cultural anthropologist by training. Anthropologists uh, especially, I think, have a fetish for location and place. When you ask an anthropologist what uh, he or she studies, uh, you really want to know where they study and who they study. Uh, and I think uh, there's something to that uh, because 
If media is now uh, no longer uh, something that we simply watch or listen to or consume, uh, media is in fact something we do. Uh, there's the practice of media uh, is not only a theory, but it's increasingly the experience and the understanding of what media is uh, for a generation. Uh, of certainly of our students and everyone to come uh, in the future as well. Uh, so the question of what we do with media and what is done with media, it seems to me also hinges on where that doing takes place and who is doing that thing in that place. Uh, and so with these kinds of issues in mind, I think it's, it's worth us considering uh, the ways that media studies uh, is not just about uh, big media in America, and then let's think about international as uh, another category of media. There's real media and then there's international media. I'm a little sensitive to this because I teach in a, a department of foreign languages and literatures uh, where there is set up this idea that it's something outside. It's sort of beyond some boundary. Uh, when in fact, I believe, uh, and I'm sure it's been the experience of a lot of people here, uh, that living in another country, uh, being in another place, uh, does not give one the sense of being outside outside, but rather gives one the sense of looking uh, with a new eye uh, on the world as it is. Um, there's a polycentrism uh, to globalization uh, that's becoming increasingly clear. Uh, my own research on hip-hop in Japan uh, was not so much about the flow of hip-hop from the U.S. to Japan as it was about the performance of hip-hop in Japan uh, and the ways that's what helped make it take root. Uh, some of our panelists today have been wrestling with these issues, uh, thinking about uh, the roles of Korean pop culture uh, as a global uh, entity of its own, uh, thinking about the ways media in China uh, operate in different ways, uh, with different kinds of premises, different languages, different technologies, literally different assumptions uh, about what media and culture are. Uh, and I think that this challenge uh, of trying to understand uh, what comparison internationally uh, means, uh, means more than a category. It means really rethinking what kinds of methods uh, can be used, what kind of tools, uh, what kinds of perspectives uh, can come from thinking internationally, uh, and that is really very much uh, the subject of the panel today. Um, with that, by way of introduction, uh, what we're going to do for this panel is I'm going to have each of the panelists come up and give a brief uh, presentation. We keep trying to switch around uh, the style a little bit, uh, try to liven things up. Uh, and then I also want to encourage you, rather than me uh, coming up with questions, I, of course, can talk as much as, uh, as possible. Uh, but I, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to say, uh, after uh, the five brief presentations, I will actually open up directly to the floor. Uh, and if there's a stall, uh, I, of course, will dive in. But I I do want to encourage you to be ready uh, after uh, the presentations go, because uh, I'd like to uh, see how that goes. Okay, I'll introduce each of the panelists individually. Um, our first speaker uh, is Aswin uh, Punatambekar. I practiced it beforehand and I still can't do it. Aswin Punatambekar, uh, he is a CMS class of 2003 and is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies uh, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He teaches and writes about media globalization with a focus on South Asia and South Asian diaspora. Please join me in welcoming Aswin. Thanks, Ian. And I have written comments prepared, but it's partly because as I thought about the questions that Ian circulated a few days ago and 
there were way too many things I could have probably said, so this is a way of keeping it coherent and short. And I can just begin by saying how difficult it must have been to bring together a panel like this, because the one thing that we can say about everyone who's spent any time in CMS is that our perspectives were thoroughly and irrevocably globalized. Anybody from any cohort in CMS could have, in theory, been on this panel. And at an everyday level, and this is true broadly at, at, of MIT itself, that there is no escaping difference. I mean, you sort of, you know, when you think about the theoretical notions from Stuart Hall that the world we live in, it's about living with and in and through difference. When we think about it, every day at CMS was figuring out how to do that and what it meant. I mean, imagine working alongside, <laughs> sorry, Sangeeta, a completely crazy half Nepalese, half Czech woman who's into Bharatanatyam and Bollywood, and you kind of get the idea. <laughs> Living with, in, and through difference. And plus, we were roommates, so I got the full dose of it, right? <laughs> and you know, so students, faculty, our interests, our work, uh, the IAP activities, the music, the food, and the games that were part of the CMS lounge at the time, and the projects we worked on, of course, fully took on board the idea, the phrase that Apadre sort of became famous for, that there is nothing mere about the local, that the local is a very profound sort of category at this point in time. And how did this shape my work and identity as a scholar? Well, there are two projects I'm working on at this point. One is a book, it's called Looking LA Talking Bombay, Globalization and the Making of Bollywood. And it's an account of the transformation of what was called Bombay cinema into this thing that we've all come to recognize as Bollywood. And I do this by tracing how the spatial coordinates of Bollywood have shifted over the last two decades, of the idea that how Bollywood is not so much a place in the world now as much as it is a really complex assemblage that involves a range of media practitioners, everyone from executives at top corporations across Bombay, London, New York, um, to diasporic media entrepreneurs, to fans and pirates across the world. And the second project is tentatively titled of Indian Idols and Pink Underwear. And it deals with the extraordinary sort of social and political mobilization that's happened across South Asia thanks to mobile media technologies. The Indian Idol case is probably familiar to some of you, but the pink underwear was a group of women who got beaten up by a bunch of right-wing goons in a pub uh, because they were, in quotes, debasing Indian culture, how dare women go drinking outside. They launched a campaign using Facebook and a number of other mobile media technologies, and they decided to send pink underwear to all the right-wing sort of men, all the men in the right-wing parties on Valentine's Day. And it sort of came together in a very, very nice mobilization, generating a discourse about questions of gender, cultural identity in this sort of global moment with mobile media at their disposal. So those are the two sorts of projects that I think are shot through with all the ideas that were absorbed in my two years at CMS and later on four years in Madison, Wisconsin in the Media and Cultural Studies program there. And I could go on and on about how different courses um, including one by Professor Thorben, he's not here, um, in which he refused to completely engage with the global until we had A, learned to write well, and B, understood that the best way to begin to think about the world was to develop a profoundly historical view of things. It was frustrating then, but I certainly do, are deeply indebted to that course, and Henry and William remember the complaints, but <laughs> I can only look back in hindsight fondly and say, thank you, Professor Thorben. Um, <laughs> But I want, what I want to do in the next few minutes is reflect on sort of how CMS sort of comes at this problematic of the global. So first, the work that we've done over the past decade, I think, reflects and presents an amazingly rich archive of empirically grounded, really sophisticated analyses of the global local dialectic as it was framed at the time. And I remember the year that we walked in, the book that was handed to us was Lev Manor, which is the language of new media, but the other one which was circulating was Arjuna Padre's Modernity at Large. 
So in a sense, sort of, we all took on this idea that for the first time, arguably the first time in history, media were at large in the world, and what was it, and what that what that meant. So how do media formats travel and get localized? What makes texts from one part of the world intelligible or incommensurable to audiences in another part? How did industry professionals grapple with the challenges and opportunities of globalization? All of these questions were opened up, and a lot of CMS students dealt with this and participated in these debates. And from the cohorts that I've been the most in contact with, Sangeeta's work in Bombay, Cho Chang and Anna's work, you know, Anita Chan's work in Latin America, all of these come to mind. So that's one aspect of how CMS and the global problematic came together. And the other one was much of this began, like I mentioned earlier, in a year-long group that William led along with Jing, I remember she was there in many of those discussions, called the Global Media and Convergence Research Group, which essentially met every Friday morning, and it was an incredible luxury and privilege to just show up, read, and discuss, and to not necessarily have a point. And you know, given all the sort of constraints that we're, all the institutions are operating in now, it's a real challenge to begin to imagine how do we generate more such spaces within academic settings, perhaps in collaboration with industry partners. But one thing that I think there are two things we identified from that, from this Friday morning meetings. A, that media futures are now being worked out in the rest of the world and not just solely in LA or London. And B, that we needed to involve a range of practitioners in our projects and conversations. In some ways, I like to think that the foundation for C3, the seeds of C3 were sown in that sort of open discussion and debate that then led to something like C3 emerging, with that Parmesh Shahani sort of launched in conversation with a range of other CMS alums and other students. So what now? Right? So it's, if it's no longer about localization or globalization or hybridity and so on, all of these ideas in terms of use, I mean, think about it. We can now trace an arc. An arc that begins with development communication and area studies, moves through cultural imperialism, ends up with post-colonial resistance and hybridity. We've sort of been through all of that and come out the other side. So what's left now? How do we begin to sort of rethink or grapple with this notion of the global now that we've worked through all of these ideas and terms? And where does CMS come in? So I'm, this is slightly a provocation and I'd love to sort of take this up further and discuss. So I'm beginning to think that we're now at a point where we need to understand the complex workings of media, culture, and society in different parts of the world on, in their own terms. I mean, I, this is a bit vague sounding, I admit, but it's, I think it's, a real, it's, it's really challenging to begin to understand things in their own terms. And I, without, being, without doing that, without being able to understand things in their own terms, wherever they may be, be they in Nigeria, be they in India, be they in Hong Kong, without that kind of profoundly local understanding, it might not even be possible to develop a comparative perspective. Right? So moving away from the whole resistance, hybridity, post-colonial stuff, let, what does it mean to think about understanding things in their own terms in a given place in time? Right? And from sort of where CMS comes in, this was the toughest part to sort of, you know, the questions that we had. I can talk about, we can all talk about, you know, more faculty lines, more funding, a PhD program, complex matters, institutional history is impossible. But I think the one thing that I could perhaps make a plea for and sort of thump on the table is say, at a basic level, it was about the students. The cohorts that come through every year to be able to recruit students from across the world, from diverse experiences, and that challenge of, continue to, of continuing to do so in the face of budget constraints and funding crunches, that to me seems to be the absolute key for CMS to be able to continue to grapple with the global and to begin developing this thing what I'm calling 
in their own terms, to get people from the parts of the world where there is that sense of structure of feeling, understanding of the media to be able to do that. And this is where I imagine MIT plays such a big role, an institutional role, to ask what will it take to continue to do that. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, our second uh, speaker is uh, Xiaocheng Li. Uh, she is a CMS uh, MS graduate in 2009. Uh, Xiaocheng lives in New York uh, where she, uh, and I quote, she consults as something of a media and branding mercenary, specializing in the intersection of globalization, digital media, and rampant delight. Please join me in welcoming Xiaocheng Li. I feel a little weird. I think I took NyQuil this morning instead of DayQuil, which, um, so if I sort of drift off in the middle of speaking and stare into the middle distance, just kind of move on and come back to me later. Um, I mean, I guess since you led with that mercenary line, I should explain a little bit about what I do. I mean, I'm not trying to be purposely vague about what I do. It's just that I haven't been doing it very long, and it is quite vague, and companies have basically been hiring me because they have some sort of question about media or about branding or about the digital space and they don't really want, they want someone to go in and do like a quick and dirty job and get the answers for them. So it's a very sort of mercenary type position where it's, I'm not within that structure, I'm sort of a, a gun for hire, so to speak. And um, the, the rampant delight is basically, I've become like a prototyzer of of K-pop. And um, I've, I've been pushing the over-groomed, you know, teens dancing information through all sorts of media channels and th that offering might come to your televisions in the, in the near future, so look out for that. Um, <coughs> so I guess taking from what Aslan was talking about, I think I'm the only one here who didn't really prepare anything <laughs> in particular to talk about, so I'm just going to free associate for a little bit. Um, taking what Aslan talked about, I did my work here on sort of transnational fandom. So in speaking of the local, I wasn't just talking about um, local at, as a uh, place, but as sort of sites of practice as well. So starting not with who does things, but what is being done and how those encounters and behaviors and practices are transforming not only the flows of media, but the people who are engaging in them. So, um, you know, it's great that he brought up modernity at large because one of my opening premises in my thesis I finished very recently and yet have totally forgotten about in the interim um, was what happens when you take those media scapes and stack the sort of networked information culture that Yochai Benkler talks about on top of that and what sort of bleeds through and what gets transformed and what sort of creates interesting tensions in that process. So when you think about uh, communities of sentiment that are being forged through media use and consumption, what happens when all of those people, are not all of them, but a, a large portion of those practices are being done in such a way that people are actually selecting and curating and subtitling and reproducing and remixing and uh, creating discourse for one another and reframing the very materials that are creating the uh, social imaginaries that they participate in. Um, and what happens when those become not only collective, but also collaborative. So I think what CMS has really afforded me in that process, and so it, it's allowed me to ask these questions in a, a way that I think I wasn't able to before, not only because of the great legacy of thinking that has come through and the great people that I've been able to work with, but because of this, 
sort of nimbleness and dexterity in how CMS approaches things that we talk about sort of the methodologically promiscuous, theoretically schizophrenic model. What's great about that is not only that you get to sort of take what you need, but it, it gets you away from this feeling that you have to merely sort of, not merely, but prove and uh, document your mastery of something prior to sort of making an offering into it. So that, that sort of, it's sort of um, a collaboration with the discourse at large, so that um, instead of saying, okay, so if I'm going to study Korean pop culture, I have to make sure I'm fluent in Korean, I have to do this, I have to do that, and say, well, what can I do at this moment that can make a contribution that someone else can then take up who has resources that and thinking that I don't have. And so it's this almost sort of prototyping instead of drafting. Whereas drafting, you start thinking about, well, it's, it's not meant for sharing, it's not ready to be public yet. Whereas prototyping, you make something, you show it, and then hopefully you can keep going with it, it's very iterative, and then other people can come into and pick up where you've left off and do things that you weren't able to do on your own. So I think that's sort of my piece. <laughs> I'm going to take a moment. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Nike will or no. Very good. That's the CMS spirit. Uh, thank you. Yeah, good. Uh, all right. Our, our third speaker uh, is uh, Jing Wong. Uh, she's a professor of Chinese cultural studies uh, and the director of the New Media Action Lab. Uh, she is CMS-affiliated faculty member working on the project NGO 2.0, uh, which brings together social media and nonprofit organizations in China, and she'll tell us a little bit about that. Please join me in welcoming Jing. First, I want to say happy birthday. And I'm, it's great to be here to... Um, <laughs> to celebrate the anniversary and also to be invited to reflect on the big future question, where CMS may be headed, uh, and making such a reflection while thinking through our own work. Uh, Ian asked me to talk about my current project, which is um, NGO 2.0. Um, it's a civic media project that has a Chinese face. I'm going to address one of the frames you give us. You gave us uh, media as practice. Um, in fact, there is a karmic connection. I think Henry will be very glad to hear that. There's a karmic connection between this project and CMS. Um, two years ago, Professor Rong Ting Zhou, where he is, uh, where he, um, uh, Professor Zhou from the University of Science and Technology of China was brought in by CMS as a visiting um, scholar, and he actually flew all the way from China to attend the celebration. He's right there sitting in the audience. So, <laughs> we met uh, at numerous CMS occasions, and uh, he soon became uh, my primary collaborator, um, taking charge of the technology piece of this project. Uh, what's NGO 2.0? It's not a perfect uh, acronym, but we chose that for a number of reasons. Anyway, if you want to Google social media and nonprofits, you will likely, well, you will find pages after pages of uh, links to tutorials, to best practices, to social media tools for nonprofits. 
actually the coming together of those two um, of the non uh, nonprofit work and social media is increasingly a global phenomenon. Um, and as we all know that because social media is a poor people's communication tools, therefore they are especially useful for developing countries and also for the socially underprivileged groups. Um, our project serves the um, grassroots NGOs in the underdeveloped areas of China. And the grassroots there encountered a bottleneck of growth for many reasons. Um, many of them have not acquired a legal status, and they cannot compete with gongos. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, it's the governmental affili affiliated NGOs. They cannot, the grassroots cannot compete with the gongos for uh, media coverage, for the attention of mainstream media. So it's been very difficult for them to uh, raise the public consciousness of the social cause they are promoting. Um, now, not surprisingly, an increasing number of NGOs in general in China are turning to uh, digital media to recruit volunteers, to organize events, and to, uh, nurture, public, uh, to nurture civic participation. Uh, but those who have acquired some digital literacy don't know enough about social media to leverage uh, the network effect. So that's um, the general background out of which uh, this project emerged. Uh, it is, what we're trying to do is to introduce to the grassroots the concept of Web 2.0 culture and thinking and concepts and teach them how to use social media tools so that they can find each other uh, and they can collaborate and uh, brand and market themselves better to the outside world. And we all know that nonprofits are change agents involved in um, social innovation. So what we're trying to do, also trying to do, is to help them push their creativity, their social innovation to the next level. And what we do, okay, um, uh, well, before, well, these are the photographs taken from the training workshops. But before I get to that, I'd like to say there are two key components. One of the components is that we're building a Web 2.0 platform complete with uh, online uh, training courses and uh, uh, and uh, a Chinese field guide uh, to the most useful social media tools for nonprofits. So that's one component. And this is uh, the, we also do um, training workshops twice a year. Um, um, and we are hoping to see, uh, by the way, the training workshops uh, last for four days. It's a very intensive um, uh, four days. We, we are hoping to see snowballing effect. That is, the trainees will go back to their hometowns and to their home provinces to hold uh, their own version of 2.0 sharing workshops in smaller cities and working with uh, smaller nonprofits uh, in their local towns. And to just give you a sense of uh, the spread of the trainees um, currently, uh, the map tells you where they are, and we will be developing a modest base of NGO 2.0 culture in those major locations that you saw on the map within a span of four to five years. Um, thus far, I'd say my field work has taken place over uh, several uh, social media platforms, MSN, Skype, um, Wikispaces, 
Um, and on the Chinese version of uh, Facebook, and especially on this platform, it's uh, an IM instant messaging pl uh, platform, it's QQ. And there you could see that the boundary between uh, work and play and the boundary between social practice and academic work became very blurry. And I also learned uh, through doing this project that the boundary between civic media and entertainment media also became, uh, is most, most often indistinct, um, in, especially in the Chinese digital environments. And if I may have any suggestions to make about the future trajectories of CMS, I'd say I'd like to see a stronger CMS identity in civic media. And I'd also like to see CMS intersect more, uh, more with the nonprofit sector. I think we've been talking a lot about the industry and for-profit sector. And I'd like to see that kind of intersection uh, happen more frequently in the future. And I think it would also be very interesting to explore the inter uh, that very fluid space where civic media meets entertainment media, not just in terms of our making theoretical discourses about it, but also to get on with the design, what I think um, that's where one of the greatest strengths of CMS lies, to get on with the design and perhaps the, the production of that interface. And that's... Um, something that this project, NGO 2.0, will also be very interested in exploring. And finally, I would like to say that this project uh, would not have come into existence if I had been working in a different uh, institutional context. And I've been here at MIT for nine years, and I would say um, even in my tangential affiliation with CMS, um, I would still say that the work you all do and the CMS thesis that I um, uh, supervised uh, in the past few years, all that has made a real big difference on how I think and how I conceptualized this project. Thank you. Thank you, Jing. And in fact, we're going to switch over the uh, uh, computer for the fifth speaker. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and I was recalling that, in fact, my first experience at MIT was before, uh, uh, before I even applied for a job here was sitting in on the um, global, uh, Globalization and Convergence Fund. It's Orit's going to go next, yes. Uh, so let me introduce our next speaker, uh, Orit Kuritsky is uh, Orit Koritsky, let me say that again, is a graduate 2009. Uh, she's a script writer, content editor, and creative director with experience working in Israel. Please join me in welcoming Orit. Hi, so actually I am not an expert on global media. I actually use my time at CMS to explore the exotic uh, culture and subcultures, rather, of, of the United States. Uh, but I, uh, I was born and raised in Israel, and uh, I lived uh, both in Israel and the United States, and I've worked in media in both places. And it didn't occur to me to share this, but um, 
I uh, actually handed yesterday uh, eight uh, synopsis uh, script treatments and one uh, pilot script for an Israeli uh, television series. And um, this is actually the, first, the second time in my life when I find myself living in Somerville, Massachusetts, working for Israeli media companies. And I, I, I thought I shouldn't mention it, actually, because it, it has a lot to do with my, you know, personal and, uh, like, family configurations. But um, come to think about it, uh, there are many uh, media makers around the world these days that, um, for instance, animators, you know, making animation in one country for opening segments for primetime TV shows in, you know, different uh, continents. There are people sitting in cubicles in one country making lineups, which is basically a set of instructions for a robot in another country to um, play tapes. Uh, and I, I, I worked uh, in Israel last year. Um, my family and I spent a year in Israel after living here for, I, I was living here for 10 years. And I went back to uh, work in uh, a production house that I worked in before that operates three different uh, uh, children channels and one parenting channel. And different, uh, all these channels, are, are most of them are, are, are also broadcasted around the world and um, in, in, uh, in other places. And uh, what I want to share with you is actually two somewhat contradictory experiences that I had during my time uh, in Israel. So the first one was, uh, is related to my job in this uh, production house where I was mainly in charge of uh, the revamping or relaunching of, of the parenting channel. And um, one of the things I, I've done uh, when I just started was uh, just to watch well, most or sample most of the programs that were at this, this channel's disposal. And I remember watching this um, show, which was actually about potty training. Um, and uh, in this show, there were those little vignettes of people talking about how potty training was done in their or has been done in the in the future in in the in the past or is being done in their respective communities. So there was this someone who was an immigrant from Ethiopia, someone from former USSR. Something that struck stuck in my mind was this woman who spoke, who who used to live in a kibbutz, and she talked about the way this has been been done there, or like in a kind of a socialist manner. They would win all the kids in the same age group at the same time and parade them in a like May first. Uh, style parade around the kibbutz. Um, but what, what was, uh, uh, I think, most striking about these uh, little vignettes was how rare they were, actually, and how they stood out. Uh, in, first of all, in the context of that specific show, which was uh, a host speaking for a pediatrician who gave advice, advice about potty training, and it was the same kind of advice that, you know, the same kind of uh, expert would give on a show from New Zealand or Australia or, or, or England. And it, was also, it also stood out 
in the context of the entire program, uh, the channel, which like uh, most so-called lifestyle channels, consisted of mainly of uh, television programs acquired from the English-speaking world, world, mainly from the BBC and its offshoots and Discovery Channel and its offshoots. And these kind of programs circulate in, on cable channels or, se or, or parenting segments, uh, segments on cable channels around the world. And after watching uh, hours and hours of, of, of these kind of programs, you can't avoid uh, uh, um, so, so as a result, actually, I have to so most families one sees on these channels are American, British, and Australian families, and most experts you see on these shows are American, British, and Australian. And, and what emerges out of it is some kind of a lingua franca of, of, on parenting. I don't think anyone, it's not something that is is directed by any way, but, but it's interesting to me that Israelis who did not experience, um, uh, for instance, uh, terrible twos or, 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 or timeout are now inherent part of how Israelis uh, experience family life uh, these days, which it didn't used to be this way. So something which is pretty intimate something which is so constructed by culture is turning to be at least as, as it's the way it's, it's projected through these shows pretty um, uniform. Uh, a different experience that I had during this time was watching the first uh, season of the Israeli version of Big Brother. Um, I, I don't know if you know it, but it's a, ja a, a Dutch format, Endemol, the, the company that sells it around the world. It's kind of known at policing um, the, way, the, way, the way it's executed around the world. So it comes with like a huge manual. Uh, they send Dutch policemen. If you do something which is different from what they intended, you have to consult with them on everything. And... Um, at the time this first season aired, um, Israelis inside and outside the Big Brother house were divided into two camps uh, named after two contestants in the Big uh, Brother house. Uh, so it was the Friedman camp and the Bublil camp. Now Friedman being uh, an Eastern European Jewish name Bublil being a North African Jewish name. And um, the division was fierce. This wasn't like hedgehog, uh, what was it, fox division kind of, kind of uh, debate. That was a fierce debate. People were watching this and debating it, this as if it was, not as if, it was a debate over the cultural um, face of Israel, really. Uh, I happened to be in a restaurant at the time of the semi-final. Like, I forgot that that was the semi-final. It was empty. On our way back, people were gathering around uh, televisions in, in kiosks, all right? And part of the debate wa was 
what are we, are we debating about, right? So is it a debate over ethnic camps, like people from North Africa versus people from Eastern Europe? No, first of all, because the camps themselves in the, inside the house were consisted of people uh, uh, of different origins, not to mention that most, many Israelis these days are, 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 are mixed, like the, the gene pool is mixed. And to further complicate things, there was this Israeli Arab woman who was a participant who was in the Friedman's camp. So, so the whole thing was kind of, so what are we debating about? And, and what does it mean to be a Friedman? And what does it mean to be a bubble? So here, like this uh, international format that has been run all over the world with a very strict set of rules, what, what comes out of it is this um, kind of, what I would like to argue is a very, very meaningful discussion that could not happen in any other place in the planet. So here you go. Okay. So you come up here. Let's see. Yeah, thanks. And there's sound too. Uh, all right, I'll introduce you, yeah. <laughs> and make, let's make sure this works. Uh, thank you. I mean, this is it's very interesting, and it, it gets at uh, exactly one of Oswin's points, it seems to me, is thinking about how we study Big Brother uh, on its own terms in Israel, you know, rather than thinking of it as an example of something from the outside that then gets localized, that in fact the debates themselves are very much uh, not only contextualized, but run through uh, with... All right, that was quick and easy. Well, Run we through. Have, we don't have sound. We don't have sound yet. The sound. Okay, we're almost there. It might just be here. He was going to run it. He, so. see the box. He, he brought it up. Oh. Yes. Here, how about this? Oh, it's here. It Bingo. is. He didn't. Okay, here we go. All right. So we, I think we are all set. Our, our final speaker, and then I encourage you. We'll, we'll start the questions after this. Uh, Anna Dom. Uh, CMS class of 2009 uh, is currently working on user experience research uh, at The Meme, a design consultancy. That's pretty good, The Meme. I, yeah. uh, a design consultancy <laughs> firm. We can't, I don't think we can blame uh, Anna for that. Uh, but The Meme, a design consultancy firm based out of Cambridge. Uh, and Anna's uh, research also included uh, something close to my heart, uh, music uh, in Brazil. We have no sound. He'll bring it up over there. Uh, music uh, in Brazil, please join me in welcoming Ana. Um, well, I had planned what I was going to start with, and now total blank because of the technical stuff. Uh, no, okay, now remember. So, before coming to CMS, I. Um, I had worked with um, with producers, um, and I had and I knew what content producers were, what that word meant, and that's basically who I worked for. In a sense, I, I worked as a as a producer. I put on concerts and festivals and and films, and I ran a film fund for uh, Central American Film, and. Um, 
So it was also a, a case of, of creating cultural policy for producers. And I came to CMS to continue that work, to continue thinking about them, because they, they seem to be, all my work had centered around that. And then all of a sudden, I kind of discovered not suddenly, it was a slow process that I didn't actually, I wasn't very conscious of. I discovered the audience, and they were part of this, this equation, and all of a sudden we were in this uh, really long uh, YouTube project, and we were coding many, many videos of YouTube and trying to figure out what it meant to be a content producer today. And slowly, um, I, I, I shifted towards uh, the, the user camp in a way. And now I'm trying to get those two worlds together in my brain. And it's, it's still not, not easy when I think about how to address those musicians and those filmmakers that I was working with in, in Central America. Um, and we're going to try to, let's see, even if it's uh, a bit cropped. It doesn't, you know. Um, before the battery runs out, because it's on, it's stupid battery. Um, so, I was working at C3 at the Convergence Culture Consortium and got really, really lucky that uh, we got Brazilian partners. And that meant that we, of course, had to do research in Brazil. And <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, we had this, the, these partners that said, please come to Carnival, we'll just, you know, we'll have you there. So there were all these things, all these temptations, so we had to come up with something <laughs> about Brazil. And at that time, um, Ronaldo Lemos at the, um, uh, from Creative Commons Brazil was talking about this odd music called Tecnobrega that um, originated in the north of Brazil, and it was these group of people that decided to forego copyright, because they weren't making money anyways, and, uh, and that created a whole new system. And I was interested in seeing how the audience interacted in that system and how they helped the value generation process. And so here's, just so you get a sense of what Tecnobrega um, is about. So those are the huge Tecnobrega parties, and they're massive. There's, the city only has five million people, and there is... Uh, 3,000 parties a month, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's something, it is that important. Uh, parties with 10,000 people every weekend. And so the audience decided to, uh, um, to become part of this process, not only by sharing, not only by promoting their favorite bands, but by forming teams. And, and these teams are not exactly fan clubs. They have their own identity that are not necessarily associated with the DJs. Um, and what they do is they grab onto uh, logos and, and appropriate them. And in this case, for instance, these are the, the, this is the Justice League. And, you know, Los Super Amigos. And they are, and how, how do they become a team? What do you need to become a team? Well, and so when I would ask them this, so, I have to say, I went to do an ethnography in the north of Brazil 
this is part of the reason I was very lucky. Um, I would ask them, what do you need to become a team? And they would say, well, honesty and friendship and a sense of adventure and, you know, things like that. that. Well, what about a car, you know, to get to these parties far away? They weren't thinking about these things, but what they really always had, the basic material object was a bucket. And that bucket, <laughs> and that bucket, they made it so that they could be identified and for two reasons. It's, it's got two very distinct functions. One, so the DJ could identify them, could see them, so they would hold it up and it's like, oh, super amigos, they're in the house. The other thing is so they can haul the beer around during the party. <laughs> and it worked, and it works perfectly well. Um, and so, this is... Alana da Costa Rica está aqui com a gente fazendo bem. Um abraço. Now, what it, they just said there is Ana from Costa Rica is in the house. That was a big party. I'm very proud to have uh, the name there. And she's here doing the pee. And this goes to something that Ian was saying, that we now do media, that it's not something that we necessarily consume. We do, and what they, these, these guys are very clear about it. You do the T if you're going for the Tupinamba DJ. You do the P if you're going to see Principe Negro. Um, Oh, right. <laughs> this is how the party ends. They have these retro-futuristic hydraulic machines that just kind of fly and then fire spews, and it's this wonderful moment. Um, God, there's more. Uh, so this is what Lemos... How to bring it back to like serious matters here, let's see. This is part of what Lemos was calling global peripheral music. And it is the sense about creating, uh, creating centers out of the peripheries. In, in Belen, there, and you really, that whole understanding media in its own terms uh, upset me a little bit. Because it it's, uh, it's, creates a lot of anxiety. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to say what it's not to do that, how, how, it's, how you can be wrong about approaching it in another way, but, once, but to do it is very difficult. It, <laughs> so I was, I don't, I'm not sure if I did or if I didn't or if I attempted to or not in this case. Um, so is this, this is not a particular, um, this is not about, this is about globalization in the sense, trying to bring it back to the topic and the, and the, on the panel. This is, a, this is about globalization in the sense that they have inserted themselves in, a wor in the world uh, from uh, a very uh, emp empowered position and they appropriate content and do what, with it what they want. Um, but this is a very local phenomenon. This is. Um, in, in the north of, of Brazil. Did not think about how I was gonna close this, quite obviously. So, that's it, for now. Some people have been saying that the, the local is the new global, anyway. Uh, and 
I think there's something to that. And I also, it makes me think that uh, we're going to have to work on the endings of our shows, too, uh, because that looks good <laughs> right there. Uh, that looks like the kind of thing we need the dean to see. Uh, she'd be like, here's where the action is. All right. Let's have our UFO land and fire fireworks in here. Uh, key tar spewing flames. Let's have some questions. I, I mean, I, I have some things I can talk about, but uh, uh, it's going to be hard to say who's going to get up here, who's going to make the stab. Yeah, come on up, Joel, please. Come on. Um, and introduce yourself, please, Joel, for those uh, who don't Joel know Burgess, you. Joel uh, Burgess, Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow. I'm um, actually just going to build off of a conversation that Jing and I were having the other day. And um, I. I it's a little bit solipsistic, but I work on time and change and history. And I recently picked up a book from Duke um, that's about sort of secular versus sacred versions of times that's rooted in Filipina cinema. And I realized suddenly that five or six years ago, I would have picked it up because it was about Philippine cinema. And now I'm picking it up because it's about time. And I'm wondering to what degree, I mean, obviously that's linked to my own research agenda. But I also sort of have started to feel like I wonder to what degree categories like the international um, and the global have started to sort of turn, not so much disappear as turn inward upon the kinds of objects of analysis they're seizing upon, so that the question is no longer how is time global, but how can the global start to allow me to think about the category of time in a more heterogeneous way? Um, and I guess I'm wondering how that sort of has played itself out for you and your experiences, because it sounded like what you were saying in terms of taking the media on its own terms Right, or even the way in which um, Big Brother was working itself out at a very local level, those seem like different kinds of questions than whether or not these are global forms. So. Somebody want to dive in there? <laughs> oh, this is. <coughs> Sangeeta was lifting this as if it's like a lightweight thing, but it's not. <laughs> it's heavy. Yeah. Um, sure, one can. One text that's been absolutely fundamental to this is another historian, Dipesh Chakrabarti's Provincializing Europe. And in some ways, what I was saying is essentially about provincializing media studies, is to begin to think about or get away from the f notion of first here, then elsewhere sort of temporal logic, that we're at a point in time where media futures are unfolding simultaneously in many, many different locations in the world, and to recognize that as a serious multiplicity of different times and spaces that we're inhabiting, and to, that's why to then begin to take them on their own terms instead of imposing some established timelines like, in quotes, the global, which has a certain timeline to it, or international, or the sort of global, north, global, south sort of thing, all of which come with a certain baggage, which is why I'm beginning to wonder what it means to do this on their own terms. And it might have even more sort of methodological complications, more sort of implications for the kinds of partners that we work with, be they, like Jing said, with you know, in the space of activist non-governmental groups or with industry partners and so on. So, others? I am not moving this around. <laughs> Anybody else want to <laughs> weigh in? More, don't worry. Uh, I guess I should say something. I think you should. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, um, I, you know, I am actually trying to get out of that frame of the global. Um, I I liked us to um, just think about you know uh, practice not in discursive terms but social practice and um, 
And uh, I, I also, well, could I be very frank <laughs> about, uh, about sitting at this panel when I first found out, uh, well, that this panel would be thematized as the international. That was actually the substance of my conversation with uh, Joel um, on the third floor. And I echo what uh, Ashwin said at the beginning of his presentation that everybody here can sit at this panel. At the same time, um, you know, I think media studies, UK and US-based media studies have come a long way in trying to incorporate the quote, um, so-called um, international perspectives. The rest of the world. Huh? The rest of the world. Yeah, the rest of the world. While we are doing that, I mean, it's great to, um, to, to see that there's one more place we can insert ourselves into one more space. But at the same time, um, thematizing this group of people at this panel um, also made each panelist have to work even harder to sort of find a cohesion, uh, to cohere this panel. And sometimes, and I don't mean to bring this out in an offensive way, but sometimes being thematized as such um, uh, made us have to work harder to draw in the mainstream audience. If this were a conference, if this were an uh, international cultural studies conference, uh, this kind of panel would probably be glossed over because I had experiences like that. So it's just a reflection on grouping people together. I mean, I think I could also uh, participate in the earlier panel on participatory culture and make a similar presentation that I did. It's just some reflection. So there's, with the introduction of a new perspective, with the uh, theory and the practice about de-westernizing UK and US-based media studies, there's, there's always two sides of the same coin. Just uh, some reflection on Please, Just to the specific point of uh, the time, um, I, 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 I didn't think it will ever happen, but I, it, I actually want to refer you, you to my, the, the third uh, chapter of my thesis, um, <laughs> which, uh, uh, which I, I won't get into the details, but it's about this woman who's called the, whose name is Mala Sili, and she put up this... Uh, mentorship program on the web uh, for people to get their houses in order. But she, what she does is a very interesting use of, uh, of time, actually, uh, projecting uh, her system on people's timelines by, by basically by spamming them with emails in different times of the day. And uh, she was also, she's also a genius at, at kind of uh, letting uh, various um, communities around the world and in the US uh, kind of inflect her system in different ways. Um, so I, if you want, just check it out. But the, so, so the interplay, uh, I think we, we think about uh, place a lot when we talk about the web. Uh, uh, but but there's something something to be said about about time also so 
Sorry. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to take from what Jing said, because when I was thinking about this panel too, I had this, we, all of us speak to very different topics. And the only thing that sort of binds us together is that it's it's somehow other or marginal or outside. And I was like, oh, we're, we're the five people that weren't born in the US. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, and it's interesting too, because all of the things that we talk about, as Jean mentioned, speaks to all of the previous, I mean, civic media, collaboration, participatory, creativity, creativity um, and all of that. So um, there, there, is, there is an interesting sort of almost, I, and I don't say this to be polarizing, to a little ghettoization here <laughs> that, that's happening with the sort of global or international things. And it speaks to too that, there's nothing about any of the previous things that were discussed that weren't already global, right? That that what we can't think of media, to Aswin's point, as coming from one place and being consumed in another anymore, right? That it's increasingly multi-stop in that way. Um, the example that I used to present a lot was this um, video of Japanese pop stars eating a giant hamburger, listening to Bruce Springsteen talking about how they're growing chest hair and wearing overalls, um, that was then subtitled by fans in Australia, then passed through the Philippines, then distributed on YouTube, and then really uh, distributed on LiveJournal, which is a now Russian-owned company that was started in San Francisco. So, like, you know, at what point, where did that come from? What is the point of origin of any of these things? Because on every stop along the way, something was added, something was changed, something was reframed. So that depending on where you saw it, it had a different point of origin. It had a different sort of cultural perspective there. Um, I, yeah, I, we're pretty bad. I'm really bad at finishing thoughts. So we're just going <laughs> to move on, I guess. No, I, was thinking, I was just, people probably dropped some, but it's interesting because we've had the same problem planning panels for FOE. Mm -hmm. So we're very conscious of this issue. This is not something that we haven't thought about. And yet we keep falling into the same trap. Mm -hmm. So, okay, this year we're not going to have the international panel. Right. And then we have the international panel somehow. Well, it, or, it, you it know, becomes yeah. a question of, well, do you then stick a token on every panel. Right. <laughs> I mean, so there, there doesn't well, but, seem... Yeah, I mean, to... can I just follow up on what I was trying to... Just that what I was trying to get at, too, is that it seems like... I'm wondering if we're at a moment where we... There is, to some degree, a group of scholars who have been trained to think globally already, so that exactly. it's sort of internalized into mm -hmm. the logic, so that it doesn't feel like... Um, it doesn't feel as much like it's it's a tokenization. Yeah. So it's tacit to me that like if I incorporate in Miyazaki into a project on obsolescence that's working from Marxist traditions, that I to some degree have to conceptualize the other kind of temporalities that are being evoked there that are not going to align with my own materialist account of things, right? And I, I think that um, the global so that the global now is my point of departure rather than my my endpoint. Yeah, I, I think that oh, go ahead, go ahead, please. No, just to go back to your early question of this is one really very very productive way to bring the comparative back into focus. To be fair, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So and this is arguably one of the best ways to begin to make that move, and then to sort of open it up further and further to sort of in quotes localize everything that's out there, right? Right. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, and, and the problem of, of feeling marginalized, I don't know, I'm, I guess my sense now, I've been working in the academia biz for a little while, I think we, we always and will forever in some ways feel marginalized, and I like the comparative term for that reason, you know, that it's, it's not, oh, we're international media studies, or we're new media studies, or we're, uh, you know, the, the different kinds of combinations it could be. We have time for the last, oh, you want to comment on that? Just a quick comment. Okay. First of all, I would say, Anna, in response to your thing, I mean, the Technobraga is site-specific, and it's not the foreign token on C3. It was about a practice that is an incredibly innovative practice that one has to go to northern Brazil to sort of dig out and, and, and articulate. And one can find traces and hints in other spaces, but that was a really clear example. Um, as to this panel, I think if you... So the, where these panels came from were our original remit 10 years ago when we said these are the research areas we're going to look at. And if you actually look at our, if you were to look at those thematic areas and track them against the projects, there's one glaring absence, and it's this one. This is a theme, the global, but we don't have any project that's a global project. Yet. It permeates everything we do. <laughs> and in, in a natural way, I, I hope, rather than a kind of token way, and the, the Braga stuff. Or if I think of the work that's coming out in your theses or your, your current work, it's stuff that's very much about the specific, the local, that is, that are in spaces that are not U.S. centric, and in a, when when the norm, when the status quo in in the U.S. media studies scene is is you know tends to be sadly pretty pretty introspective, um, I think it's about the specificities. Uh, that's that's really what the issue is, and all of you speak brilliantly to that. But it's not about as as um, as, as Jing mentioned the foreign you know that we that we call foreign languages or I think. Uh, Ian, if you said that. The foreign that is foreign languages and literature, that's absolutely not the point. But the proof of the pudding as far as CMS goes is the absence of a research project that's about foreign or transnational. There's nothing like that. It just permeates all of what we right. do. Good point. Yeah. Good point. And, uh, uh, and the, the flip side, too, is that had we all been farmed out to uh, different panels, we wouldn't have been able to have this debate, I think. So that, <laughs> there's some advantage to that. Now we'll have our last question, because it's been a long day, and William has some closing remarks to make. So this will be our last question. And of course, there'll be reception to continue the discussion afterwards, but please. Well, that, that's yeah. a heavy load there, Ian. Um, Jim Bazoki, Simon Fraser University. I was struck by uh, one of the things that, that, many things in the panel, but in particular, one of the things that Jing Wang said, uh, where you talked about the blurring of the boundaries between civic media and entertainment media. And so I'm curious if you or if the other panelists have more to say about some of the dynamics and perhaps us, how, how some of the dynamics and some of the design of entertainment media can directly inform the, the design and dynamics of, of civic media and perhaps vice versa. Um, I could only make some speculations. Um, because of my work on this project, um, I uh, became very interested in social media action research. And if we, it's really like an emerging field of inquiry. And I would say the co-researchers in making research decisions about that new field include uh, the corporate sector. And those of you who have, um, who are good-hearted, who are, and um, philanthrop, how, um, how do you say that? Philanthropologically minded, uh, may have played the, the uh, gift rice game uh, made by the Berkman uh, Center. Um, so that's, that's the type of, um, uh, blurring of the boundary that I've been thinking about. And I also knew a little bit about the Future Civic Media Project here. 
Um, and I, from my point of view, um, I would like to see those uh, very interesting, intriguing ideas and uh, small projects to scale up. Um, and well, that's one area of work that I hope to see happen. But back to the civic media, entertainment media interface, I wonder in my wildest dream, could uh, the gaming lab work with the future civic media group to explore on the design and creation production of that interface that I was speaking of? Other comments on the intersections of entertainment and civics? I mean, I'll throw in one thing, is that, uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons I started studying hip-hop in Japan, and then I'm looking at animation, Japanese animation, going, so hip-hop goes from the U.S. to Japan, or U.S. to the world, An anime goes from Japan to the world, so there's the polycentrism of it. But what also links these two forms is that neither of them were respected by elites or by big corporations, that they were both seen as well, hip-hop was a fad, a trend, there's no, it's not musical, they're stealing other people's music, it's not going to be successful, and nevertheless it goes global. Anime too, it's for kids, it's not serious, it's junk food, it's not serious media, and nevertheless it goes global. And it seems to me that what it reminds us is that there are these ideas, these practices, these creative forms of expression uh, that can go global and become influential around the world despite uh, not having the support and push of either elite government people or elite corporations. Uh, and it seems to me that if we look for clues in that, uh, that we look for clues in these forms of entertainment that weren't pushed by major corporations, that we should also be able to see some of the dynamics that can spread these other good ideas, human rights, environmentalism, uh, economic justice, uh, that uh, a lot of us share. Uh, and I think more people share than we would expect from reading the newspaper or uh, or, or certainly hearing from our politicians, uh, and that, that the idea that political will uh, or a business model is what's needed uh, is patently uh, provable false, or disprovable, I suppose. Uh, and so that, anyway, that's one of the connections I've been thinking about and trying to make. Go ahead, Xiao Cheng first, and then we'll get to You know, speaking to what was talked about earlier about fandom and activism, you know, fans have created really immense, complex social structures that facilitate the circulation of content it, it, to such a scale that now media companies are you know, really starting to pay attention and basically bringing on people like me to say, well, how do we do what, they, what it is that they do? So that it's no longer about just like sort of resistance making do in the margins, that these alternative markets that they're creating where they're circulating content is actually setting a model for industry. Um, and I think that, then provides a model for activism because the, the sort of complex architecture of what they do, the scaffolding of bringing in new people and bringing those things to scale is really, really immense. Um, uh, yeah, Jujing, you want to have it first or you were waiting? <laughs> we'll, we'll work across yeah. uh, I, I think we, somehow we're always coming back to the industry and I really would like to see us talking about you know games and nonprofit sector that's why I brought up the Bergman Center uh, uh, game and I think there is well if you want to say well there is a huge um, there are constituents who would consume those kind of 
games or activist uh, schemes, whatever you want to put it. But I'm trying to, you know, what I'm trying to um, emphasize in my presentation is to also draw us to look at the other direction. In the other direction, that's the nonprofit sector, and that's also very mm -hmm. exciting and amusing. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Anna, do you want to go and then we'll get where you get to? Um, hello, hello. Hey. Okay, so I guess just that um, I think that there are certain forms of fandom, and, and certainly it, it, I got that sense from Tecnobrega that just by participating, they are enacting citizenship. And so I think that that's important. To, to remember and to not necessarily apply our notions of civic participation onto them, but to say, well, this is a way of enacting citizenship. And uh, it's certainly the case was in Belen for a, a whole set of the population that gained a voice and gained a presence through participating in this music. Sorry to bring it back to industry, but um, just uh, want to, I think there's a, with people uh, walking in part of the world for media for other parts of the world, there's a whole host of new uh, questions about labor. There are whole, like, lot, lots of labor issues that arise that are interesting at least to think about and to explore. And I think, I don't think it's a real civic issue, uh, but just like one example, the, 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 the script writers for in treatments in treatment, the Israeli uh, uh, show that is broadcasted and was adapted for HBO, with episodes of like uh, um, translated verbatim, the Israeli scriptwriter didn't see a dime. So, as a civic cause, like the children of Gaza are of course way more important, but it's still interesting to to think about these these issues and and maybe to think what standards should be. So, great. Also, I just wanted to make another uh, sort of thing. We haven't talked about the classroom here as much, and that's a really critical space here to begin to move out of this global, local, and this sort of problematic that William was mentioning. You know, I remember in Henry's seminar, in the pro seminar, where we, all it took was for Henry to show us a Busby Berkeley clip and for me to bring up early sound cinema in India to immediately sort of localize both LA and Bombay, right? Or to bring up Indian Idol in conjunction with the Harry Potter Alliance. So it's, as much, it's sort of incumbent upon us to sort of constantly make these comparative sort of moments in every space possible, be it in sort of C3-like moments or in the classroom. And that's the only way forward, is, mm. as I see it. I think it's uh, certainly clear that we are not going to solve uh, all these questions today. But I think it's also a testament to how uh, interesting and exciting uh, the various directions of CMS. It's been uh, 10 great years. The dean promised us at least 10 more years uh, this morning. That's what I heard, anyway. Uh, and uh, I want to uh, please, uh, we have comments from uh, William. We have more events coming afterwards, although the, the symposium start will be, part will be winding up. But first, please uh, join me in thanking our panelists uh, for this panel. So Ian, first of all, thanks. And thanks, Ian has, was, has worked as associate director this year and has been a lifesaver. And especially, you know, in, the, in a world of glasses half empty and half full, after 10 years on this job, I'm kind of at the half empty part. And Ian has really brought an optimistic twist to just about everything we do. And thank you, thank you. Um, 
great panel and great day. A, a testament, I think, to the, to the wonderful work of the last decade. Uh, long way to go. I just want to end on two G words. One is generative, and I think so much of what I heard today and so much of what the past 10 years have been, at least in terms of my work and through my encounters with uh, the folks here at CMS, has really been extraordinarily generative. The approaches we take to things, the, 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 the mix of folks that we bring to the table, really sparks new ways of thinking, new ways of looking, new problematics, new ways of defining the objects and the processes uh, that we work with. And that's just, I think that's one of the core strengths of the program. And the other core strength is generosity. Um, it's a really great place to have fierce debates because it's not personal. It's really about people who are invested in thinking. And I, I have to say, in 10 years of being here, certainly Henry and I have never had a crossword. That's remarkable. I mean, not, not <laughs> remarkable given either of our personalities, but just <laughs> given, you know, given the, stress that this, the, the stress of this operation, you would expect once in a while a crack in the facade. And it's not a facade is the point. It really was a terrific collaboration. Um, and it also with the folks uh, in the program, the debates that occur in our classrooms and in our projects have been incredibly generous. The readings we do, as Henry suggested the other night, it's not about, it's not about using theory to break someone down. You can always punch a hole in something. I mean, we're all, anyone who's halfway clever in the humanities can tear things apart fast. Deconstruction is, uh, is our business. But it's about what can we add to this? How can we twist it to make it stronger and better? And that generosity of spirit and of, and of intellect has been a trademark of the program. And I just want to thank all of you for being here. And so the deal now is, let's see, we have um, a party that starts at 7, so that's an hour and 15 minutes from now. And it's right next door. And it's right next door in that big uh, sort of blocked-in room. There's a, the white area and a black room, and we're going to the dark room. And uh, in between, we have a lot of uh, exhibits downstairs uh, from work of our alumni. And I, I guess there's probably some more cookies and cheese and apples or something. So. Come on down, look at, look at the, the work of the folks who've come from this program. It's the tip of the iceberg, but it's really worth looking at. Thanks very much. And, and because we're not going to interrupt the party with you know, words or whatever, one last time, I just really want to thank Brad Sewell for the logistics, uh, Sarah Wallison, and Jessica Tatlock for all their hard work in making this happen. Thanks, guys. It's great.